These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. After 87 episodes, despite quite a lot of personal interest in it, I've only managed to fill three episodes with the tale of early Assyria. To be completely honest, when I started the show, I knew a few things, but I had some gaps in my knowledge and just sort of assumed that these would be filled in with research as the show goes along. It turns out, however, that until now, those gaps in my knowledge have been filled in with pretty much nothing. The city of Asher, on the northern Tigris River, has a few interesting periods in its early history, but aside from these, spends centuries wallowing in insignificant obscurity. Well, today we change all that. From the rise of Ashur-Ubalat I, somewhere around 1353 BCE, to the fall of Ashur-Ubalat II in 609, the city of Asher will pretty continuously act as a major player in our story. However, it has been quite a while since we last talked about Asher, and when we last left them, they were just about to fall under Mitanni dominion. So it's worth going back to the beginning and reminding ourselves just what's so special about this little city on the northern Tigris. First off, Asher is old. Back in the Uruk period, the 3000s BCE, before writing had properly been invented yet, the city of Uruk, down in Old Sumer, sent Sumerians all around the ancient Near East out founding colonies and securing resources like it was the beginning of a game of civilization. One of these colonies was the city of Asher. Though, when the Sumerian colonial empire fell into decline, the city also declined and was forced to look to its immediate surroundings to thrive. Then, when Sargon of Akkad came by, he conquered the city, much like every other city he passed by, and the city slowly Akkadianized. Then, when the Amorites came around 2000 BC, Asher has the distinction of managing to avoid being taken over by an Amorite ruler, at least for much longer than the rest of Mesopotamia managed it. Meanwhile, Asher built up one of the largest and most fascinating mercantile empires of the ancient world, inventing things like joint stock companies millennia before the rest of the world and founding trade colonies all the way from Iran to Anatolia, and possibly even in Sumer and the Levant as well. We just have worse archaeological evidence for it. All this wealth made them a tempting target, and in the Middle Bronze Age, an Amorite named Shamsi Adad took over and made Asher a core part of his northern empire, which spanned pretty much all of northern Mesopotamia. That empire didn't last too much longer than Shamsi Adad himself, however, and Asher then spent long, slow centuries in obscurity, with its trade colonies destroyed and its territory reduced to pretty much just the city and some fields around it. These three periods, the Merchant Era, Shamsi Adad, and the Slow Decline, were all covered mostly in episodes 39, 41, and 56 of this podcast. Links to all on the show page at oldeststories.net. Anyway, somewhere in that period of decline, around 1475 BCE, the rising Mitanni became an irresistible tide, too much for the greatly diminished city to resist. And there were perhaps eight kings of the ruling Adicide dynasty who ruled as vassals. 
but it seems that they were never happy vassals. And sometime around 1415, the Mitanni king Shaushtatar was forced to sack and humiliate the city, stealing a number of precious and sacred artifacts from Asher. The only one we know about for sure is that Shaushtatar stole a door off of one of the temples. But it was a mighty fine door, and the Assyrians would remember this humiliation for generations to come. The Assyrians would remain vassals until 1353, give or take a bit. Now, there does seem to be a bit of confusion over who was actually king at the moment when Asher broke free of Mitanni domination. Some think that King Ariba Adad lay the groundwork for everything, then died right as it started and his son finished things. Others give the next king, Ashur-Ubalat, the credit for pretty much everything. To simplify matters, I'm going to give Ashur-Ubalat credit for pretty much everything as well. By the 1350s, Mitanni is a bit past its peak, still quite powerful, but racked with succession crises. Three things are going to converge at the same time, however, to bring the kingdom down. In the west, you have Shapililiuma, who we've looked at quite extensively in the last few months over in Hittite lands. In the center, you have the coward king Tushrata, who will crumble at the mere sight of Shapililiuma's genius. Then, here in the west, we have Ashur-Ubalat I, who is as awesome as any of the top Hittite kings that we've been looking at. I should add here that matching up the chronologies of Assyria with the other great powers is particularly difficult, and there are a few times where kings from other nations are discussed in conjunction with the kings of Assyria, and we know there's simply no way that these two people could ever have lived at the same time. Sometimes the records are off by as much as a century. This naturally makes telling a coherent story of Assyria rather challenging. But Saurians have assembled a tale that seems to account for most of the issues and ascribes the rest to scribal errors. Anyway, Shapililiuma crushes the Mitanni king Tashrata and reduces the Mitanni to vassal status. What exactly Ashur-Ubalat is doing at the same time is unclear. Most likely, he simply announced that his city was no longer a vassal and started making his own diplomacy, forming treaties with nearby city-states like Ausha and Irite. Most notably, he sent two letters to Pharaoh Akhenaten, which have survived in the Amarna archives, probably from quite late in Akhenaten's reign. The first one is short and reveals so much about the situation Ashur-Ubalat finds himself in that I'm just going to read it fully. Say to the king of the land of Egypt, Thus Ashur-Ubalat, king of the land of the god Asher, For you, your house, your land, for your territory, for your troops, may all be well. I have sent my envoy to you, to see you and to see your land. Up to now, my fathers have not written. Today, I have written to you. I have sent to you an excellent chariot, two horses, and one date stone of genuine lapis lazuli as your greeting gift. Do not delay the envoy who I have sent to you for a visit. May he see, and may he depart. May he see your behavior, and the behavior of your land, and may he depart. 
First of all, note that Asher Ubalat uses a reduced form of the standard greeting and does not call himself the Pharaoh's brother. He does hint at equality by referring to each by the title of king, Lugal, in Akkadian, but he does not insist on the matter. Second, note that the letter doesn't really say much of anything to the Pharaoh himself. It simply announces that the Assyrians exist, acknowledges that they haven't really been players for a while, and then asks permission to look around a bit and see this Egypt place that all the cool kids have been talking about. He then sends a polite greeting gift showing that he isn't a complete savage. He may have also sent letters to the Babylonians and Hittites as well, though we can't know for sure unless we find them. All this independent diplomacy was, of course, very much against the rules for a nominal Mitanni vassal. But distracted by Shapililiuma and reduced to a vassal themselves, there was little that the Mitanni rulers could do about it. Curiously, the Babylonians seemed to have believed that if the Mitanni could no longer hold on to the northern Tigris region, then it naturally fell to them, and there may have been a very early treaty between Ashur-Ubalat and his Babylonian counterpart, Berneburiash II. Perhaps I should say, rather, that there definitely was some sort of treaty, since there was a royal marriage between Ashur-Ubalat's daughter and Berneburiash. But either the treaty went through multiple iterations, or the two powers had disagreements on what exactly the treaty meant. Because when Assyria sent this letter to Egypt, the Babylonians sent their own separate letter to Egypt, insisting that the Assyrian letter was a mistake that Asher was a wayward Babylonian vassal, and their envoys should be escorted to Babylon, implicitly suggesting that they would be punished. It isn't clear what happened, but we get the sense that the Egyptians ignored the Babylonian request and seemed to have been decently polite, though distant, with the Assyrians. But all this politics would have come to nothing without the force to back it up. First, Ashur-Ubalat needed to become a local power before he could be taken seriously as a regional power, and this involved a great deal of tiny warfare. So tiny, in fact, that we wouldn't know anything about it at all, if not for some fortunate finds in nearby towns. Sometimes, like the important city of Nineveh, may have volunteered to join Asher. After all, it wasn't safe to be outside the network of great power vassalage. That was just painting a target on your back for all the ambitious nearby states who were protected by an overlord. Nineveh at first signed some sort of agreement with Babylon, but quickly switched over to the much closer and expansionist power of Asher without apparently much fuss at all. And so, one of the most significant acquisitions of the Assyrian Empire, which would form part of the homeland for basically the rest of Assyrian history, fell into its lap just by virtue of being nearby and the Assyrians being aggressive. Not everyone, however, chose to switch sides quite so politely. The city of Arapa, modern-day Kirkuk, was a small local power which happened to rule over the small town of Nuzi. Nuzi, of course, is the town where an unusual amount of late Bronze Age clay tablets have been unearthed that tell the stories of the people living there. 
Back in episode 72, we looked at a multi-generational land dispute, and in episode 73, we looked at a crime syndicate that had infiltrated the local government. While many of these early Newsy records tell us that there was a decent amount of economic exchange between Asher and Newsy, with even some Assyrians on record of having willingly sold themselves into slavery to masters in Newsy, this same level of detail tells us the very human costs of what would usually be a war too small for history to even bother remembering. On a political level, Asher is moving west against a Mitanni vassal as the Mitanni Empire crumbles. There are some indications that they did this in conjunction with Babylon, but the consensus right now seems to be that Babylon may have been a political ally, but Asher did all the fighting for Arapa. But on a personal level, the Nuzi texts tell us what it was like to go to war, and they tell us who never came back. We have accounting lists that tell us explicitly how the upper-class men of Nuzi were armed. The government, both the Mitanni and the local Arapan government, would each distribute uniform bronze scales. For instance, in this particular text from Nuzi, a man named Ninki Teshub receives 500 scales intended to go to his body, 500 scales for his sleeves, and 200 scales for his helmet, making a total of 1,200 bronze scales for the armor of Ninki Teshub. Each scale was of uniform size, perhaps about one inch wide by two inches long in some places, all the way to half an inch wide and four inches long in other places. This variation was between different geographic regions, so most likely all Mitanni armor was made of certain size scales, while the Hittites had a different scale size, and perhaps the scales distributed by the different vassals, such as the Arapan government, were to yet another standard. Because the people who are listed as receiving scales for Arapan-style armor tend to get about 700 scales total for the body sleeves and helmet. In this particular document, four people received scales, two from the Mitanni government in so-called Hanigalbat style, and two from the Arapan lord in Arapan style. Now what exactly the differences between the two styles were is unclear, but whatever the case, it may have been that it was then up to the recipient to take these bronze scales and sew them together onto a fabric backing to create their own personally sized armor from these mass-produced components. Now, these men were certainly charioteers, the elite of the army and society, since this is an absolutely massive amount of expensive bronze, and no way was the government going to lavish that sort of protection on regular infantrymen. Those regular men, though, may have been able to get government-issue spears, bows, arrows, and perhaps solid armor pieces from state armories, if they did not own their own equipment. Though Nuzi seems like a modestly sized town, it was able to contribute 84 chariot teams to the Arapan army. It may be that because Nuzi was particularly wealthy, being an early center of glass production in Mesopotamia, they could afford more of the massively expensive war engines. 
Or it may just be that this is what an average, modest town could throw together when really needed. We can't attach a firm date to this, but sometime in the 1340s or 1330s, the Assyrians attacked the land of Arapa, starting at a town about halfway between Asher and Arapa called Tertia. This battle was an overwhelming victory for the Assyrians. We have a very broken list of what battle equipment was lost during the battle, most of which is unreadable, but goes into such detail as to tell us things like one bowman, Aka Urhe, shot six arrows during the battle, while another small unit lost two of their five bronze daggers in the fighting. Battle units appear to have been extremely small. One listing of archers who went to the battle lists men in groups of two to four, either a tiny group from a particular dimtu or a small band under a single man, almost certainly reflecting the pre-existing social units, probably something to do with extended households, which includes sons, male relatives, servants, and hirelings. Sometimes men are even listed individually by name, likely indicating that a family only had the one man eligible to be sent. All these men were grouped into a group of 20, under the command of a single commander, but then they were also listed as a number of unattached men and small groups. Documents like this, with such individual levels of detail, tell us of an army that's very much a microcosm of its community, preserving the same peacetime social structures and the same close, intimate knowledge of your fellow men as would be common in small towns. Contrast this to, say, something like the modern American army, where if you join, you become little more than a name, rank, and serial number, plopped into the system wherever it needs to replace a cog, and serving next to a pretty much random assortment of fellow Americans. Which, I guess, is in its own way a microcosm of modern society. These soldiers of Nuzi served next to their neighbors, and even when they joined the wider Arapan army, fought and died next to the men they had spent their lives with. This isn't a criticism of the modern military, it's just an example of how social structures in both war and peace were very different in those times. While this Arapan-Assyrian war was relatively small-scale, even massive battles like Kadesh were fundamentally made up of local groups like this, at least on the Hittite side, and this is common for units throughout Mesopotamia. But not all the men detailed come back from the war. In the battle itself, either in the town of Tertia or fought somewhere nearby, we have partial records of substantial losses. Of the 84 chariots of Nuzi, 58 were on the left flank of the Arapan army, and of those, 34 are listed with the somber note, they will not be coming back, indicating that the left flank of the Arapan chariots may have taken close to 60% casualties in this battle. These are listed by squad, and like with the archers, these squads are not of uniform size. Four chariots were commanded by Hype Shari, five were commanded by Shakartilla, ten under a man we know from other documents to have been a pretty important fellow in Nuzi, Kel Teshub. 
This tells us again that these squads reflected pre-existing social arrangements. And when Hypeshari's whole command did not return home from the battle, this would have been an incredible personal tragedy for the whole family left behind, having just lost a substantial number of the men who provided for what was probably a quite wealthy household. But to a certain extent, it's expected that men will fall in battle. This is the natural hazard of warfare. But in Nuzi, we also have a line-by-line -line listing of assets owned by Nuzi citizens in and around the town of Tertia. After it fell, this listing of things plundered by the enemy may have been submitted to either the Arapan or Mitanni government, in hopes that after the war, assuming there was a victory, these losses could be made good again out of the spoils of war. One line tells us that a man had 200 sheep, and two of his shepherds taken off to the Assyrian town of Kabuba. Meanwhile, five sons of Uwazi were enslaved and taken to the city of Tezu. Slaves stolen by the Assyrians were listed among the stolen property, and whole Dimtu towers, around which small farming communities kept themselves safe, were destroyed. This listing is actually quite extensive, and multiple similar records were found in Nuzi in the houses of multiple magnates, keeping careful track of everything that the war was costing these aristocratic families. Later on, when the war reached the town of Zazi, south of Nuzi, we have record of another 22 individual charioteers who did not return home, as well as 101 infantrymen, nearly all of them listed by name as casualty records. It isn't clear how these losses would be communicated to the families, but this list was surely one part of the process of letting mothers know that their sons had fallen in battle. Additionally, 38 men were captured in the battle, and this listing would be used as part of figuring out how to pay the ransom. After this defeat, we have lists of Mitanni soldiers who get stationed in various towns around Nuzi. Apparently, the declining kingdom sent soldiers to reinforce the local commander after two losses. However, though we have no documents of the fall of Nuzi itself, because they were too busy getting sacked to write anything down, we know that it was one of the last places to go, with the Assyrian noose tightening around the town until its final sack around the year 1330. The people of Nuzi spent their final two decades after a long, prosperous time under the Mitanni, watching their whole region fall to the Assyrians. While we have no indication that the Assyrians were unusually cruel to the Arapans or to Nuzi, the costs of warfare, which I so very often gloss over on this show, were very direct and personal to the people who lived through them. Nuzi itself was burnt to the ground. Bodies of the slain were left in heaps, while the survivors were carried off into slavery. Many of the dead were not discovered until thousands of years later when the archaeologists dug the city up again. This isn't unusual cruelty. This is just how warfare was in the Bronze Age and still is in much of the world. But the conquest of Arapa and Nuzi is, as I said, so minor as to barely be worth a mention in the histories.
We wouldn't even know about it if it weren't for the coincidence of the Nuzi excavations. In Asher Ubalit's memorial, written probably by his son and heir, we learn that he was most famous as the conqueror of Musru and Shubaru, two places that we nowadays know nothing at all about, and yet these conquests were considered more significant than the war in Arapa, which wasn't even mentioned. At this point, Ashur-Ubalat controls probably substantially less territory than anyone else claiming to be a great power, and a map with the estimated extent of his conquests is up on the show page at oldeststories.net. Additionally, instead of vassals, he seems to have a number of allies, which most kings would tell you aren't nearly as good. Still, he has enough conquests and enough diplomacy that he feels confident in firing off another letter to the pharaoh of Egypt. This letter is quite polite, with a greeting gift of a chariot team that was supposedly Asher-Ubalat's own chariot. It also positions Asher-Ubalat as the brother of the pharaoh, who is probably by this point the young king Tutankhamun. Not only does it position Assyria as an equal to the great powers, but it also points to Assyria as the logical successor to the now-beaten Mitanni, insisting that the gold which Egypt once sent to Mitanni should now be sent to Asher. It's generally a pretty standard letter anticipating further diplomatic exchanges, but for such a new and rising power, having this friendly communication as equals is pretty significant. And it isn't just Egypt that is seeing Asher as a great power nowadays. The relationship between Asher and Babylon will come to be one of the defining characteristics of Mesopotamia pretty much until the end of the independent Mesopotamian empires. And this begins all the way here, at the rise of the Middle Assyrian Kingdom. We've already made mention of the fact that Asher-Ubalat's daughter got married off to Berneburiash II of Babylon, and when Berneburiash died, he was succeeded by his half-Assyrian son, Kara-Indash. However, there was a faction among the Kassite court who had no interest in deepening ties with the Assyrians, likely believing that the North Tigris region was ripe for conquering, not for making deals with and they slew Kara-Indash, raising their own candidate to be king, a man named Shugash, about whom nothing at all is known. Ashur-Ubalat, however, could not permit this outrage to stand. His grandson had just been murdered, and so, if he couldn't have peace with Babylon through diplomacy, then he would beat them into submission. The Assyrian army marched down, and before anyone could stop them, was already in the gates of Babylon, attacking the palace and murdering this pretender Shugash. Ashur-Ubalat's daughter died somewhere in the mess, and so he raised a new king from the Kassite line, one who would be suitably grateful for having picked the right side in this little civil war. This would be Kurigalzu and he would take the throne just before Ashur-Ubalat died of old age. It is possible, though it isn't certain, that one of the Assyrian attacks on Karchemish occurred in the final years of Ashur-Ubalat's reign, though a bit of Hittite resistance chased off the Assyrians, who would have been quite far from home at this time. Ashur-Ubalat ruled for some 35 years, and set the foundation for Asher's kingdom for generations to come. 
He isn't the greatest of all Assyrian kings, but he is, in his own way, pretty significant. His immediate successors are a bit less significant. With Enlil-Nirari, the truth is that for our chronology for Assyria compared to Babylon and the Hittites is so difficult to work out that many people will ascribe the things that Enlil-Nirari may have done to the reign of his father. For example, we don't actually know which Assyrian king dealt with the fallout of the invasion of Babylon and the installation of Kurigalzu, though modern scholarship seems to be increasingly leaning towards Enlil-Nirari. After all, it makes sense that Kurigalzu, who so recently had been appointed by Ashur-Ubalit, would have an occasion to question his loyalties when his Assyrian puppet master died. Would Kurigalzu, and by extension Babylon, remain a puppet to this upstart northern dynasty, or would they contest the matter? As it turns out, the Babylonians were pretty well united in their hunger for vengeance against Asher for Asher-Ubalit's regime change mission. The Babylonian army marched north to the city of Sugagu, where they met the Assyrian army and may have defeated them. A second battle was fought at Kalizi, where the Babylonians may have gotten the worse of it. The total outcome of this war is often called a draw, because both Assyrians and Babylonian records claim a victory. Most historians, however, see this as something of a loss for both sides. The Kassites had hoped to at least sack Asher in revenge for the attack on Babylon, and likely desired to take over the north completely, which they conspicuously failed to do. The Assyrians, meanwhile, lost control over Babylon and had a border drawn between two equal states, proving that without whatever spark of genius Asher-Ubalit once possessed, the Assyrians were now unable to dominate as they had been. I, however, would suggest that there was a victory for both sides to be proud of. The Babylonians were clearly able to assert their independence, which was a bigger thorn in their side than some unrealized dream of expansion, while the Assyrians were able to settle a definitive and somewhat favorable border along the Tigris between the two kingdoms, which will stand for quite a while. Whether you see this war as a win or a loss, it's clear that Ashur-Ubalit had been somehow holding together the upstart kingdom through personal merit and charisma, and that his son possessed very little of that special something. In Enlil-Nirari's reign, we get the impression of an Assyria that's impoverished and beleaguered, at least to a certain extent. A letter sent by the king to some merchants in Nippur has some good news and some bad news. The mere fact that there was a letter sent tells us that after the Babylonian War, there was reasonably free flow of trade between the two kingdoms. However, the letter itself is explaining that tin, a key element of bronze and a valuable strategic metal, is extremely scarce in Assyria, thanks in part to attacks from unnamed enemies. We hear nothing at all of expansion under Enlil-Nirari, who seems to have had his hands more than full for most of a decade with these unnamed attackers. He would be succeeded by his son Arak-den-Ili, 
whose name means God's judgment is everlasting, which I think is one of the better names of the Bronze Age wasted on a fairly obscure king. Arak Den Ili continues to be attacked by tribal raiders, and here we get a listing of the ones he manages to fight off, including truly ancient enemies like the Gutians, as well as new rising threats like the Ahlamu and Suteans, who were probably also the people attacking Enlil Narari as well. These are barbarian peoples who have been pressing on the borders of Mesopotamian civilization since basically before there was any civilization to speak of. And while particular groups may come and go, the eternal presence of nomadic tribesmen beyond the borders remains an issue to a greater or lesser extent at all times. Except that under the reign of Arik Den Ili, we get a single indication from a single line written by his son that perhaps these tribesmen were not simply raiding as part of their violent way of life. Rather, there seems to have been a somewhat conspiratorial belief that the Babylonians were playing puppet master to these tribals, and that all the struggles of Assyria in these two generations are the faults of their southern neighbors. The way this is presented makes it completely possible that the Assyrians were just jumping at shadows, seeing Kassite interference in their problems because they hated the Kassites at this point, the Bronze Age equivalent of a modern conspiracy theory. After all, the same line that mentions the Babylonians also mentions that while Arik Den Ili was able to fight off the tribals, he could never manage to actually engage any Babylonians. Is this because the Kassites were just imaginary phantoms and the tribals were all there was to fight at that point? No one knows. It is in fact completely possible that the Babylonians were secretly working with the northern tribesmen and that this conspiracy theory may have been completely correct. But with so little go on, we can do no more than speculate either way. Arik Den Ili may have conquered a small amount of marginal land, but for the most part, neither he nor Enlil Narari did much to build upon Ashur-Uballit's success. That changes in 1305 when Adad Nirari succeeds his father Arik Den Ili and launches Asher into a new round of expansion and triumph. Meanwhile, we can hardly move forward on the Assyrian story without talking about their southern neighbor, who's doing quite well for themselves as the cultural progress of the Kassite dynasty continues apace. And so, for the next few episodes, we'll be bouncing back and forth between the northern and southern powers of Mesopotamia, looking mostly at the conquests of the Assyrians and the cultural achievements of the Babylonians. So join us next time as we take a look at the development of the Babylonian calendar system and watch the Assyrians completely annihilate the remnants of the hated Mitanni. Thank you for listening.